Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, and welcome to the show. This is part two of our coverage of Marie Curie. Obviously, listening to part one might be pretty critical to understanding this half, but just as a refresher, here's where we are so far. Marie Sklodowska was born and grew up in Poland under oppressive Russian rule. She got an education in France, met and married fellow scientist Pierre Curie, had two daughters, discovered two elements, and won a Nobel Prize. That's a really quick, nice wrap-up. <laughs> it's not a song like last time. Sorry. I know. You know what? Here's the funny thing. I thought I was going to surprise you and write the second verse. There's no way. <laughs> no way. That's funny. So we are starting back up after the sudden accidental death of Pierre Curie. So understandably, Marie is bereft. Bereft. Even a couple days after his death, she did try to go back to the lab. You know, maybe work is the answer. Immerse yourself in being busy. And I think it was probably too soon. She wrote in her journal like she was writing to Pierre. And she said the laboratory had an infinite sadness and seemed like a desert. Oh, I know. Well, now, you have to remember, she had a lifetime struggle with a situational depression. So even just getting out of bed and having the wherewithal to think, okay, I'm going to write it out. You know, like now a lot of women work through their grief with blogs. This is kind of the same thing. And she did it through her journal. And she began it, Dear Pierre, you know, like a letter to him, like you said. And just having the thought to do that, it's quite remarkable. So she was having trouble in the lab because she kept looking around thinking it's unreal and he's just going to walk back in. And the house was the same way. Everywhere she looked in the house, she just felt like he's going to come right through the door. And so to that end, she decided she needed to move houses. After what I assume is a very emotional conversation with her father-in-law, he offered to move out. He's like, you wouldn't want to live with an old man now. Now that my son is gone, I'll, I can go live with my other son you know, surely you want me gone. And Marie's like, I need you. Please, I need you. More than ever, because he's been instrumental in raising the girls. You know, he's been there for them. So another change, a historic one, was that the Sorbonne awarded Pierre's position, which was at the time an assistant professorship, but became a full one within a couple years, awarded his position to Marie. Her salary quadrupled. Which is great. You know, the government had actually offered her a pension, which she turned down because she said she was young enough to earn a living to support her and her daughters. You know, in this day and age, you know, I, I can make my own money. I can I can make it. First female professor in France. Yeah. But here's the thing. Who else could they get? Seriously. <laughs> Who understood the work? I mean, there's no one more qualified. But the reality is, I think, here's the reality. I think they'd never have given it to her or really even honored her with full credit if Pierre hadn't died. I really oh. think not. So this great opportunity came at a high price. Like people would congratulate her on this position and she'd want to punch them in the face. Yeah. Do you realize what I had to do to get this? It's not a good thing. It's yeah, I know. So the buzz was growing about Marie teaching her first class. This was going to be super exciting. The first woman to lecture at the Sorbonne. Reporters wanted to be there to hear what she said. Fashionable France wanted to be there. Mostly to see if she'd fall apart because people are dirty. Traditionally, you kind of gave a little homage to your predecessor. And that, in this case, would be her recently departed husband. Mm -hmm. This could be super cool. Yeah. One book I read compared the prospective audience to birds of prey. 
Because they're thinking a woman isn't going to be able to do what he did, first off. You know, sexism's rampant. Secondly, yeah. What was that phrase? Uh, spin a street yarn. They always wanted to do that. You know? <laughs> like, Susan just learned that term, and now she wants to put it in a sentence. I actually wrote it down. I'm like, use the term spin a street yarn as often as possible. <laughs> that is funny. People were putting pressure on the Sorbonne to move her first lecture to the big auditorium so more people could get in. This whole thing makes me think that the fashionable set has not changed since Versailles. They want to see a meltdown. They're super excited. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no spectacle, said the Sorbonne. You know, we are, we are well brought up. No spectacle. We're not moving this. So the day of, the place was packed. The actual students came to find their seats are already taken. Yeah. <laughs> Standing room only. Um, Marie entered to thunderous applause. And there was a pause. And then she spoke. When one considers the progress that has been made in physics in the past 10 years, one is surprised by the advances that have taken place in our ideas concerning electricity and matter. She started with the last line that Pierre gave at his last class. Nothing to see here. The whole lecture, disintegration of the atom, the structure of electricity, just as if everyone in the room were her students and they had been to the previous lecture and now we're just continuing where we left off. I think it might have been a nod to her students because they would have recognized that line, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if anybody. And the rest of the people would have been like, yeah, okay, what? You know, this is disappointing. <laughs> no yarn here. Right. Well, you know, the ones standing by the door, I don't know, students, late risers throughout history, I think, um, yeah. got it, like you said. And, and she gave the whole regular lecture that she had prepared based on Pierre's notes, and then she vaporized out the back. So there, that job is work, work, money-making, making a living work. Mm -hmm. There's also laboratory work, which was gradually shifting from what I would call pure science, you know, research for knowledge's sake, to kind of practical applications for radiation and for her discovery and how can I turn this to help humanity type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Purifying. the discovery was gone. Now it was the application, which isn't as glamorous. So I also have to say, remember, she is a mother to two little daughters. The younger one, who was only three at the time, remembers her mom as someone who kind of moved around in a fog and was sort of vague all the time. And one of her earliest memories was of her mother fainting in the dining room. <laughs> you know, grief, of course, and our old enemy depression and probably mm -hmm. overwork and probably overexposure to radiation. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, in single parenting, working mom, it's it's the same struggles, you know. And she didn't have any role models, really. No, not at all. And she didn't like this education system in France. That's right. So, <laughs> so she cobbled together a kind of a homeschool program for her kids and her friends' kids. It sounds quite idyllic. Um, they'd go to some lectures at the Sorbonne. They'd visit museums and they'd have people come in and teach them literature so it was very relaxed and very home-based it was called the cooperative i mean they even <laughs> learned chinese they even learned art from a sculptor yeah so there were about 10 kids and literally the people teaching this endeavor had way more than 10 degrees between them this is like having yo-yo ma teach your children cello because he's your <laughs> friend um so she taught the little kids 
at her establishment, and she seems like a really good teacher. She's had a little background in this before teaching at the teacher's college. She's so interesting, I think, to kids. The class isn't boring. Like, here's one project. My son would love this, and I hate to think about the laundry. um, They covered ball bearings or big balls, you know, in ink, and then they would look at the paths they made down different inclines, and then they'd learn the math related to the way they made the path. Yeah. They, you get out of your seat, you try stuff. And she does have kind of a sense of humor, sort of a dry one. She had this pot of boiling water, and she's standing up in front of the class. This is a physics class. Mm-hmm. How might I preserve the heat in this liquid? And so the kids are, like, yelling, insulate it with, you know, all these different materials, wool and cork and blah, 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 place it in a vacuum. And she's standing there for, like, 15 full seconds in silence, and she goes, or I could just put on the lid. <laughs> and what she doesn't say is, you freaking overachievers. <laughs> I just, so these are some real smart kids, and they're used to being challenged in this way, but she's more like, oh, dear. You know, start simple, then complicated after. And that's right. kind of how she worked, too. You start simple, you mm-hmm. you get the radium together, and then you can develop some experiments. But once her daughter Irene wasn't paying attention, her mother just calmly threw her notebook out the window. And she came back with it, and May, is what they called her, May said again, okay, I'm going to ask you that question again. Are you ready? <laughs> that sounds like me, actually. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of moms, I think. Because right now I, with the bottle flipping, I have thrown Oh, my God. I'm so damn. sorry. I did retrieve it. I threw a bottle out the window the other day. Oh, my gosh. I dumped the car. bottles out. Yeah. And you know what? I caught them. One of them doing the summer is dumping out half a bottle of water to get a half bottle instead of drinking it. They dumped it down the sink. I was like, I, you want to talk about flipping? That was a bottle flip. <laughs> the mama version. Anyway, back to Marie. <laughs> Tuesday's math classes were given by a protege of Pierre Curie's, a man named Paul Langevin. And over time, Marie and Paul became closer and closer. They both loved Pierre, of course. And there was great common ground with science. Their children had become friends. He began to confide in her. He told her about his unhappy marriage. Ruh-roh. And after not too long, the work friend thing had become an affair. An affair to the point of they rented an apartment to meet in an everything affair. Hmm. Mm. So let's have that, this whole situation, move simply to a place in the background. It's Marie is 39. It's 1907. There it is. Taking away, sort of literally. Um, yeah. Under no the next part of the story. So okay. it's there. Okay. And incidentally, I think you referred to this before, but that collective, the scheme, only lasted a couple years. I think everyone just had too much going on. Yeah. It had to be hard to maintain. It reminds me of all those professors I had in college, especially, you know, freshman, sophomore year, the relative, you know, the ones that are always in the, the auditoriums that had, the teachers had too much publishing to do to actually teach, so you were taught by TAs. Right. Until you got to junior year, I think. Yeah. For Marie and the girls, I mean, it was just a good um, transitional situation, I guess. Yeah. You know, for for their grief process. So the girls ended up going to a school that is still there, uh, still prestigious, as a matter of fact, called the College Sevigny, where Eve may have, may have, the timing is right, been a member of the very first kindergarten class in all of France, which was opened at the College Sevigny the year she was five. Oh, that would work. So that's pretty cool. So back to work. 
Back to work. <laughs> Lots is happening. Lots is happening. The scientific community agreed there needed to be some kind of standard measurement for radioactivity. And, you know, due in large part to her past accomplishments, of course, radium was chosen as the element they'd use. It's the thing they know the most about that's radioactive, I think, mm-hmm. after all. And there was a little hiccup where the commission for the radium standard gave the name one Curie to this very tiny amount of radiation Mm-hmm. And Marie convinced them that no, one curie should equal the radiation produced by one gram of pure radium. And that actually seems to make sense to me. Yeah, it does. And, but this is like, like we just had this conversation. You said it in two sentences, but the scientific community, it took a very long time. You know well, and they never did up. specify whether they named it after her or Pierre or both. It was never specified. Still, never. No. And she wasn't like getting off scot-free as far as, you know, oh, she's this great scientist. She was being challenged at every corner, which I guess in the scientific community is a necessity. But like Lord Kelvin, you know, the temperature guy, um, he he challenged their work saying that they didn't deserve the Nobel Prize and that their discovery of a new element was faulty. So, you know, Marie was like, what are you, crazy? So she set off to produce even more radium. Unfortunately, he died before she got to the Niener part, you know? That's Which a pretty is, big Niener. But, so she was still faced with challenges for her science. And I don't know, I'm just going to say, a lot of it may have been because she was a woman. In a man's world. And, you know, not to not to excuse them in any way, but honestly, these men have all been raised one way and they're being faced with a like a giraffe in the room. It is a complete novelty. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pierre was caught by her, the novelty of her being able to keep up with him scientifically. Right. He fell in love with her. Well, not everyone's going to fall in love with you. And they're still taken aback by the scientific, you know, proclivities mm-hmm. you have. So I think it's like the same the same effect it had on Pierre, kind of like, whoa, what is this? And some of them didn't take it well. No, but you know what? Someone that did take it well was multimillionaire Andrew Carnegie. So that was kind of cool. He came and he he met with her and donated like a big chunk of money so that she could have a, a lab. I mean, he was so impressed by not only her work, but her. I mean, like it was like $50,000, which is close to one and a half million dollars today. So, you know, she had her supporters. And her lab, although I have to say, you know, after she made the, the sample, the standard, they had to peel it out of her hands. Peel it. They didn't, she, she was, wanted to keep it. And they said, uh, the standard measure has to be in the hall of measurements with the other standards. You can't yeah. just stick it in a drawer. Hmm. So her lab got the work of verifying the strength of radioactive samples for other people. I mean, the chemical company can say the radium they're trying to sell a doctor or a radium water company or whoever, they can say it's strong (laughs) um, without a certificate from Marie's measuring service. So your credibility then was not so good. So she did the measurement and she was the measurement. (laughs) That's kind of good. That was my brain blowing. (laughs) She also finished as if she had nothing else to do. She also finished Pierre's book, a 600 page book, mind you that it was only half finished at the time of his death about gravity's effects on radium and polonium i it was probably sparkling had many fun characters there was a romance (laughs) scene a dynamic storyline yeah (laughs) well she also edited a book of his published papers called the works of pierre curie and then she just 
immersed herself in work and it must be said that she went all cold and she had thoughts of suicide sort of Mm -hmm. or at least passive suicide i'm just going to read you another quote from her journal among all those vehicles in the street is there not one to make me share the fate of my beloved i'll do my duty to the children but there's no joy left in me and never will be again yeah, and she said something else I don't have it in front of me about how, you know, she would not commit suicide, but she would welcome death. Yes. So Ooh. she kind of wanted the vehicle to jump the curb, but she wasn't yeah. going to step off the curb. Right. Well, her older daughter was having nightmares. Her older daughter's nine. And she was freaking out all the time asking people, is May dead? Is May dead too? She's nine. It's a reasonable response to trauma, <laughs> but Marie just seemed to be relieved she'd stop asking about her father. She considered that a positive development. She's not a child psychologist. Yeah, no, no. Well, so her relationship with the children about now was just distant fondness. Like, Grandpapa was the daily affection, and thank goodness he was there. (laughs) Almost for their sakes, it -hmm. seems like kind of like so they wouldn't be subjected to her happy face with a straight line across it. It was just a mask she wore. There's not happy and there's not sad. There's just nothing she sent them away a lot to not away like business get out away to nice relatives houses friends houses governesses she was separated from them for a long time so there's a second thing percolating in the background Mm -hmm. is the relationship with her children marie published her own book called the treatise on radioactivity to which some male scientists reacted sort of like oh uh, isn't that cute the little woman sure did write a lot down there's a lot of words yeah. it'll be useful to look things up for a few years until it becomes obsolete openly disparaging her about that okay and i i'm just going to play the devil's advocate here but my guess is that they were probably doing that to each other too oh you yeah, know, yeah 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 more so probably to her but to each other, yeah. Well, and then science is nothing if not delighted to upend somebody else's theory. So you're right. It probably wasn't just because she was a woman. She's published three books within <laughs> a space of a tiny period. And I think there's a certain jealousy uh, in that, you know. Well, sure. Speaking of jealousy, Paul Langevin's wife had found out about them. <laughs> oh, what a smooth transition. Thank you. I've been practicing in the newscaster to weatherman school of transition. <laughs> so I guess this guy had been kind of a serial cheater throughout their marriage. It was a mismatch, although they had four children, so whatever. Marie and Paul were actually very close for a very long time. He used to be a student of Pierre's. Yeah. They'd known each other for years. So his serial... um uh dalliances were probably well known to her well his wife had always looked the other way before and i don't know if it was marie herself and the way she was or just the famousness of quote madame curie this one was different in some way maybe paul really was falling in love with her and she felt very threatened this wasn't just a little fling this could be a thing you know so this one was different somehow and paul warned marie that his wife wanted to kill her Like, yeah, yeah. But wait, Mrs. Paul and her sister waited in an alley and attacked her on her way home, telling her she'd better leave France unless she wanted to die. And Paul just said, well, she's perfectly capable of murder, my dear. You know, like, oh, my God. (laughs) Maybe you'd better leave France, he said, at least for a while. And she's, leave France, no way. Her application for this prestigious Academy of Sciences, founded in 1666, was wending its way through the process of election. 
And the Pasteur Institute was working with her to open a lab. It's not a good time to be leaving France. And plus, I'm a French citizen. I have every right to be here. Exactly. You know? He's the one that's stepping out on his wife. Marie's not doing it, but of course his wife is looking at it very differently. It's always the girl's fault. I don't know mm -hmm. why. She's uh -huh. not married. No, exactly. So I don't think the onus is exactly on her. But anyway, we'll get back to that. I don't know. <laughs> but the election process to this academy was very grueling. Pierre had gone through it before, and it really bugged him. You had to call on all the members and make your case. A little small talk, a little sipping of the tea or the wine, blah, blah. Pierre freaking hated that. Marie was kind of in her fog, so she just, like, walked through it. You know how, like... When you walk through the steps of a dance when you're learning it or whatever, there's no emotion. She's making the calls, checking right. off, you know. So she doesn't actually kind of care, and it kind of goes well for her that way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but these sexist newspaper cartoons portrayed her as this frivolous lady who just wanted the fancy title or as a hardened criminal trying to take the honor right out of a man's hand. And she's Polish. Um, there were still about half of them that really resented her for her gender. Even though on paper, she was more qualified to be in there than some of them. They called her on having inappropriate ambition, is how they put it. Yeah. So ultimately, she lost 28 to 30, which is actually very close. Yeah, it is very close. So she lost to the man who had developed the wireless telegraph. So it was a worthy competitor. And a pretty good showing, actually, given the obstacles she'd faced. And you can always try again. It's very common not to make it the first time. It's not an insult. I mean, somebody has to die again before you can try to get back <laughs> in. But it, it, there's no shame in your game if you didn't get in on the first go-round. That's fine. It's common enough. But she didn't apply again. And, in fact, the first female full member of the French Academy of Sciences was not admitted. Do you want to guess the year? Oh, I know the year. Oh. <laughs> it's how about 1979 that's kind of shocking i know well you know what happened is at this time they had the academy held a secret vote and said decided that no girls would be allowed in their so, little clubhouse yes that's right so even if she had desired to run again she couldn't because of that little old y chromosome so she did receive an invitation to another exclusive event called the Solvay Conference. So here's what you have. 20-some of the best physicists in the world in one room discussing one topic with each other. So all expenses paid because Mr. Solvay is super rich in Brussels, Belgium, and he got all these people together. And in this case, they were going to discuss radiation. And Marie was the only woman invited. Also there... The man who thought her book would be obsolete in a year. <laughs> also there, a young Albert Einstein, both pre- and post-theory of relativity, confusingly <laughs> enough. He published one part, then there was the conference, and then years later he published the other part. I thought I could really determine. He did have dark hair, but it stuck up just as bad when he <laughs> was young. I thought he was really cute. He's super cute. I don't. Is, I mean, here we go objectifying the greatest minds in the world. But <laughs> he would think it was so funny. He wouldn't care. Yeah, he okay. had a great sense of humor. I hope so. And also, Paul Langevin, oh ho, secret boyfriend and longtime work colleague, is also at the table. Marie received some good news and some bad news. So the good news is, congratulations, we've awarded you the 1911 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Stay tuned. 
The bad news is, Madame Langevin went through her husband's desk. She has all your letters. She's sending them to the newspapers. She's already accused you of disappearing with her husband, to which Marie responded, We didn't disappear. We were at a conference. You can ask anybody. That's right. There's pictures of me and I, Albert Einstein right there at the table. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The poo hit the fan. The poo hit the fan. Marie was called every name under the sun. A homewrecker, a harlot, a foreigner, a Jew. What? People stood around her house and threw rocks through her windows. People spit on her. Many of her colleagues kind of carefully distanced themselves from her. There were calls for her to leave France. One colleague went so far as to get her a university job in Poland so she could get away. Yeah. And not as a benefit to her as like a, here, look, go. So she's, they're threatening that perhaps she should leave her job, her country, her job, everything. Why this hate? I mean, huh? No one's calling for Paul Langevin, father of four, serial, what am I going to call him? An extracurricularist? <laughs> Say that three times fast. I don't even know. And the other half of this scandal, who is more at fault, really, whatever, to, mm-hmm. to leave. Oh. This would never be an issue if she'd been a man. Uh, never. No. Um, so the letters weren't so explicit. I mean, hardly even PG-13 by today's standards, but there's naked jealousy in there, if not naked parts, if you know what I mean. Her sleeplessness, her thoughts of him, instructions on how to behave with his wife to make her leave him. That's where the French press is like, what? She cautions him in one very notorious letter not to become weak and get his wife pregnant. Which would be the worst thing for both of them. Not both of them meaning his wife and him, but Marie and Paul. Yeah. (laughs) Um, This whole situation was called the greatest sensation in France since the theft of the Mona Lisa. You guys. (laughs) Matters got so bad that Marie had to flee for a while and use her sister's name for camouflage when she checked in as Bronislava Deluska. And she had to hide her kids because the press is surrounding her house. You know, they want they want blood. They want that street yarn, you know. Okay, I won't use that word ever again. Well, today. <laughs> <laughs> well, Albert Einstein, father of the child of one of his own students, by the way, mm-hmm. and who later, when married, had an affair with his own first cousin, who he ended up marrying. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. There are other people who have situations He was very useful at this time. He said, I am impelled to tell you how much I admire you, your intellect, your drive, and your honesty, and I consider myself lucky to have made your personal acquaintance. You hold that riffraff in contempt. Just stop reading it and leave it for those vipers that they made it up for. So, yes, easy to say, Mr. Einstein, easy to say. Mm -hmm. But over at Nobel Prize HQ, there was great consternation because Paul Langevin had been embroiled in a open conflict with a <laughs> yeah, the, reporter. Yeah, the only thing that really happened to him that was bad, I guess, was that a reporter had called him a bore and a coward in print, and Paul wasn't going to take that. So here's this scientist and this writer that have challenged each other to a duel. So they come to the duel, they walk their paces, they turn, and both of them refuse to raise their pistols, which kind of sounds like a metaphor for something else, but I Uh can't quite figure out what it is. So that was like, that was the extent of his 
you know, the bad things that happened to him because of it. The whole thing. And she's like being, you know, they want to kick her out of the country. (sighs) And the Nobel Prize Committee sent a letter that said, we must do everything possible to avoid scandal. The princess will be at the ceremony and other royalty. Where could Madame Curie even sit? Who could possibly have her at their table? Which is monstrously unfair. She got a letter which basically expressed regret that they had already offered her the prize in the first place. And if she could, A, not come to the ceremony, please, and B, decline the prize until these accusations are proven false and your name is cleared. Make it about your pride and your respect for this organization, please. And Marie wrote what I'd call a tart letter back. Oh, yeah. They weren't giving her this prize. She had earned it. You know, it wasn't a gift. It was something that she had earned. So she wrote him back and she said, quote, The prize has been awarded for discovery of radium and polonium. There is no connection between my scientific work and my private life. And the value of scientific work can't be influenced by libel and slander concerning my private life. So basically, like, I will be there, the end. And she did go. And King Gustav himself presented the prize. And no one said a dang thing about the scandal. Good upbringing one, I guess. If there's an unpleasant subject, let's change the subject. I don't think anyone forgot about it. Get this, though. Sly. Maybe not on purpose. Whatever. During the dinner, Bizet's Carmen was playing. And in (laughs) that work the heroine inspires duels uh and ends up being killed by her lover followed by (laughs) followed by uh an orchestral work entitled cleopatra we know how her morals were viewed don't we dirty pool king gustav (laughs) but on the surface everybody was kind to her you know, they weren't, it, even though the music in the background was playing, you know, the words were kind, don't you think? The words were kind. Well, the words were well brought up. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think it was just more like, let us place this firmly behind me in a cupboard and turn the key because it is not proper to bring this up at this point. We've tried <laughs> to handle it behind the scenes. And now we are doing this on a stage and we will behave ourselves. Except for our choice of music selection. Hmm. King Gustav, by the way, had his own bedroom scandal years later. (laughs) It involved a young man. That's all I'm saying. We're not going to get into King Gustav. But I'm just saying pots call kettles black. Yeah. Are they going to take King Gustav's award away from him? Me thinks not. Interesting. So in her speech, Marie was very clear, very clear in drawing sort of a frame around what was her work, her own without Pierre, without the follow-up research that had come based on her work. And she she wanted credit. She might not have wanted the money, the patent, but what she did want to make sure that, was that no one saw her as, as less than, as somebody's assistant. Her speech made it very clear that this was her work and as it should have, as it should have. Oh, Yeah. So Marie Curie was the first person to receive two Nobel Prizes in two different branches of science, chemistry and physics. Let's just let that information sit with us for a few minutes, and we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we'll find out what life after that second Nobel Prize was like. So we're back, and Marie had been through the ringer. I just want to say that here's a quick wrap-up of the case. 
Madame Langevin did get her divorce and got to keep her children. Uh, the, the ultimate result didn't happen until years later after Paul had an affair with someone else. So where's the vitriol for him? We don't know. Or that anonymous other woman? We don't know. Anyway, here we leave the whole lot of them. Au revoir. <laughs> I wish we could entirely leave the whole lot of them, but it left a mark on Marie because she came back from Sweden a very weakened woman. Yeah. Um, yeah, between the Nobel Prize one and the Nobel Prize two, the grandfather who'd been the constant in the lives of the girls had died about four years after Pierre did. So Maria's really single parenting with the help of governesses, and she's had all these major stressors on her. So she's not going to handle it very well. And they'd had to move into this apartment on the fourth floor of a building because her house had turned into a tourist attraction. I almost said circus attraction, which is kind of a Freudian slip. Eh? Same, yeah, same it's old pretty table. close. Yeah, same exactly. Attraction. And so depression, our old friend, got hold of her again, which, fair enough, a lot had happened. And she made threats of suicide. Her health otherwise had taken a turn for the worse so badly so badly that she had to undergo an operation on her kidneys that nearly killed her and she didn't see her daughters for over a year she was moving about to various places between france and england um trying to get at one point she was being cared for by hertha Ayrton. is that how you pronounce that last name mm-hmm. she had experience helping starving suffragettes including christabel pankhurst who is the daughter of Emmeline, the suffragist leader. Um, she was helping her get stronger, but a year, that's a long time. And then when they did reconnect, it was on vacation with the Albert Einsteins. Here's a little anecdote about Mr. Einstein that I think is really touching. The two okay. girls liked him. He's a fun guy. He's a humorous guy. He has sticky up hair. He's hilarious. And he's, <laughs> you know, unlike usual scientists, I think he's more like comfortable with people than... All the rest of these nerds. (laughs) So he was a breath of fresh air, I think. And so they determined they're all going to go hiking. And the little girls think, okay, we're going to get Mr. Einstein. Because you know how May is. She walks around and doesn't look. And she's going to fall into a crevasse. And we are too little to get her back out. Let's take Mr. Einstein with us. Because he's strong enough. And he'll pay attention. And he can get her back out. Cool. Nope. 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 Albert Einstein and Marie Curie got into a conversation, and those fools had to be pulled back by their belt loops so many times <laughs> by small children that the small children were very disgusted with him. You're no help at all, basically. You call yourself an adult? What? <laughs> You're no help to us. Goodbye. <laughs> so a great compliment came from her homeland. Poland was building a radium institute. Please, Madame Curie, please move back and be its director. Think about how much she had wanted to help Poland during those flying university years. Mm-hmm. She'd almost moved back instead of marrying Pierre in the first place. But now, mm, circumstances had changed. She'd really come too far professionally in France to move back, I think. And she was determined to stay there and watch the walls of the Institut du Radium Pavillon Curie. I have no idea if I said it right. Um, It's in a street called Pierre Curie Street. It's all Curie all the time. (laughs) She's there hassling the workmen, according to some accounts, kind of into everything and everybody's business. She not only hired a gardener for the grounds, she planted a landscape worth of flowers herself because... When the lab opened, she wanted there to be a nice show, like a good curb appeal. She wanted people to have a good feeling. I know some moms who have thought ahead and done that for a daughter's wedding. You seem like that kind of mom. 
that would landscape for a daughter's wedding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I put up an arch and planted things around it for her senior year. <laughs> oh, there you go. See. For a senior year picture. Yeah. The arch, the tree. Yeah. <laughs> In July of 1914, when Marie was 47 years old, the Radium Institute was finally open. It was actually these two big multi-story labs, and they're connected by a courtyard. So one would be focused on medical uses of radioactivity, and one would be dedicated to more, like, pure science properties, chemical and physical, of radioactive elements. Basically, a well-staffed, well-organized, well-funded version of Pierre and Marie's old machine shed. But this one had a roof. And heating. I wrote, and heat. And prestige. And prestige, too. But what it didn't have was good timing. Unfortunately, Germany declared war on Russia on August 1st, less than a month after the opening. And France was bound by a treaty to defend Russia. So, the order for mobilization went out. And at this time, all French men between 20 and 48 were to some degree involved in active service. It was just how things were organized. So the young ones were active army for three years. And then you kind of got less and less degree of reservist until you were technically exempt when you're 49. What this meant for Marie, though, there was suddenly no staff. And within weeks, German troops were in French territory. She was in a country at war. The French government bailed out of Paris as too vulnerable and set up shop in Bordeaux, which is on the opposite side of France. I know there's east and there's west, but if you're looking at a picture of France, it's on the bottom left. (laughs) It's kind of as far away from Germany as you can get and still be in France by the ocean. Marie's children were away on vacation with their governesses in Brittany, Now, they're comparatively safe because they're on the top left, just across the English Channel from England, as close as they can get to that escape route. Really, her immediate family was pretty safe, safe, safer than she was in Paris, but it was her family in Poland she was really worried about. The Germans had invaded and there was no news, so would she herself go to safety? You know, she decided she would not. She was very afraid for the new institute, and... It's like her and one man who had a heart condition and couldn't be sent to the army were rattling around by themselves. And she wanted to stay and try to protect it. And I was thinking, from the Germans? I'm just not sure the average soldier is going to be put off by one lady in a black dress. But I do get it. It's sort of irrational, but maybe thievery and looting prevention. I guess I can see that. Because if people in France see her, they'll know who she is. But I don't know that the average German soldier is going to be like, oh, no, it is Marie Curie. This is the sanctified hall of radium. We must not proceed. Well, and then the radium itself, she was in possession of, you know, all the radium in France, which was extremely valuable. Um, It was only amounted to about a half a teaspoon, but it was her responsibility to take care of it. That could power the whole institute's worth of research. You don't need a lot. Mm -mm. A little goes a long way. So this little bit went a long way. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She... That laugh, I don't know. (laughs) She personally took that radium and she lugged it in a 45-pound lead suitcase down to Bordeaux to keep it safe during the war. That she was seriously embarrassed to be seen leaving Paris. She was seriously embarrassed. She did not want anyone to think she was afraid. I'd be afraid, of course, but I would have been off to Brittany with my children a long time ago. 
her children were protected and she was protecting the only other thing that was extremely valuable to her and that was her research and this radium oh she's on the train and people are like oh are you madame curie and she's like no i get that a lot you know she wouldn't tell people who she was she didn't want to be called a coward Mm-mm. no so she's standing at this station for a long time with this case that's too heavy for her to pick up and luck would have it some passing official not only picked it up because of chivalry not being dead, etc. He recognized her, got her a bed, got someone to carry the case, and they put it in the bank. Does the bank know they have, like, I guess it's in lead, but, like, <laughs> are they aware of what is sitting in their safe deposit box? I just don't know. Um, so then she went back to Paris, to the astonishment of everyone in Bordeaux. Like, you're going back? Okay. So she went to the National Help Society and volunteered her time. You know, no, go. Just go home and rest. We're fine. They don't know her very well, I think. No. If they thought she'd be sent home. She gave money to hospitals, to charities, to Polish relief. She knitted like crazy. (laughs) She offered her two Nobel medals to be melted down for the war effort. Each one's about a third of a pound of 23 karat gold. I looked it up this morning. Valuable. Oh, you did. I'm I'm sitting here going, dang, I never looked that up. Good for you. (laughs) Well, as of this morning, they're worth $6,500 a piece. It's impossible. I mean, was gold more expensive than, I don't know. You know, that's like too much calculation for this little frivolous sentence, but the bank wouldn't do it. No, thank you. We're not going to melt down Nobel Prize medals. Although, you know what? Right at the beginning of World War II, gosh, wish I'd written this down because I didn't. (laughs) There was a scientist who, afraid that his Nobel Prize metal was going to be seized by the germans he dissolved the gold in a solution Mm -hmm. dissolved his metal so that it just looked like a bubbling cauldron in snape's potions classroom and they came in and you know i don't know what that is and then the nobel committee after the war recast his metal for him wow with that gold that's pretty cool i have to figure out who that is we'll put it in the show notes that is pretty cool so anyway all this piddly crap you know she's frustrated you know what can i do to be really useful and it came to her it came to her although this wasn't really her specialty it had been the inspiration for her own work x-rays wounded men were already beginning to show up back to paris and if doctors had access to x-ray machines there'd be no need for all this exploratory surgery to find out where the shrapnel even was like digging around putting your manky fingers in you know come on so to work this i can do this She spent September getting money and equipment and equipping Paris hospitals with x-rays and training workers to use them, including Marie's daughter who had joined her. The 17-year-old Irene joined in her mother's scheme. The thing, you know, the thing that she has to do everything thoroughly. And Marie actually took a class in anatomy and another one in x-ray procedure, a real fast class, so that she could have all the information she needed to operate these x-ray machines. And then she went a step further. You know what we need. Because you can't always bring the wounded to me here at the stationary facility or to any other hospital. Because she did the hospitals first. Right. What we need are mobile units. Yes, we do. So we're going to save some more lives. And so she outfitted this touring car, kind of a long convertible, with an x-ray unit, a blackout tent, and a generator that could be run off the car's engine and immediately realized she was on to something useful. And so in pursuit of this goal, Marie kind of lost her shyness. And she, 
extracted passes out of government officials, money out of thin air, and motor cars out of wealthy ladies' garages. And she said, I'll return them after the war, of course, if they're still drivable. Like, no promises. Yeah, knowing full well that she's about to take them to a body shop and get them modified into into an ambulance-type vehicle. But she amassed a fleet of 20, and they were called Little Curies. They had a driver and an x-ray technician and all the equipment that they would need to help out in the field. So she had to train people, men and women, and like Susan said, not just how to run the machines, but anatomy, mechanical engineering, because they had to be able to fix their cars or the x-ray machines, and geometry, so they could be extremely useful. You have to kind of triangulate, based on the x-ray, how deep the wound is. Right. And uh, that's going to boggle everyone's mind in the field. So you got to send an expert in to interpret the results, I think. And Irene actually took over as the teacher while her mother was in the field. Ultimately, there were 200 fixed x-ray stations. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, Marie made radon gas syringes to be used to sterilize wounds. I've read several places that that's of dubious efficacy, but at the time... That was said to save lives. I don't know if it was really helpful to sterilize them or if it was a placebo effect. Mm. That it made people feel better, this like glowing blue thing applied to their wound. This is also the time that she's she's giving standard issue felt gloves as protection from the radiation. And I mean, that was a coat and felt gloves would protect you from any radiation that the x-rays are giving off. Ooh. Now, think about it now. Even when you go to the dentist to get an x-ray on your teeth, you're, like, covered in that heavy lead blanket. <laughs> and the the uh, hygienist hightails it out of the room. Yes. So Marie herself learned to drive, also to fix cars. And because you can't always count on a chauffeur being available, men were needed, you know, to do other things. She saw firsthand the horrors of war. And sometimes, really, in fear, she'd be driving alone during wartime on bad roads. Where's the enemy? I don't know. To get to a battlefield hospital. She's very brave. And she's more protective of the equipment than herself. (laughs) She was so mad. This driver went off the road a little and tipped that car upside down. She was trapped inside the car. She was so mad because she thought the x-ray machine had broken. And she only came out of her... She only came out of her funk and her anger when she's trapped in the car and the driver's running in circles around the car. Madam, are you dead? Madam, are you dead? Madam, are you dead? Like a chicken. And it made her laugh. So she survived. No, she wasn't dead. The x-ray machine was fine. But she was more concerned about the equipment. She visited 300 hospitals. Sometimes people thought that this bent over lady in simple clothes was a cleaning woman. But she never cared about that. She worked with peasants, and she worked with the Queen of Belgium, and it didn't make her know, never mind, who was the rank of what. She eased people's minds. She explained what the x-rays were. She, you know, made people unafraid of them. She was very calm. You know, I don't know that she was exactly a nurse, but she was certainly a voice of reason. A certain level of emotionlessness, you know, that kind of relaxed people, I think. Yeah. Well... Her viewpoint on this whole thing was, I can't do anything for Poland, so I must help my adopted country. Mm -hmm. And it is that same kind of revolutionary fire she had had as a young person, though I thought there was a certain irony, and now she's battling on the same side as the Russians. 
yeah against them exactly exactly that must have stung a little bit at the onset so by the end of the war Marie Curie's machines and technicians had helped over a million wounded soldiers. And I was reminded of when we covered Josephine Baker, who on the surface is flamboyant. She dances with bananas and not much else on her bod. But her spy work saved thousands of lives. And here we have the shy scientist saving a million lives. And I said he was gone. I did say he was gone, but I lied because I do want to tell you that Loverboy Langevin, we're going to talk about him for a second, just one more second. <laughs> he invented this sonar rig using a piece of crystal of Pierre Curie's that Marie had given him. He used it to locate submarines, so he saved lives too. And that is really all I'm going to say about him. He's really gone. Oh, wait, nobody. Uh, all right, I'm going to say one more thing because he's not really gone. He remains a family friend for the rest of her life or his life. He's gone from the script. He's gone from our story, yes, but he's not gone from their lives at all. Along came Armistice Day. At last, November 11th, 1918, not only was the war over, but Poland was independent. It was a free country at last. I'm sitting here waving my hands like there's flags in them. I'm celebrating Armistice Day. Speaking of flags, Marie wanted to put flags all over the Radium Institute, and there's not a flag left in Paris, so they had to go to the fabric store. Oh, man. And make the tricolor. No, they didn't have to cut out stars or anything, so it could have been worse. Yeah, that's true. Just straight lines. That's true. So now she can turn to the business at hand. You know, one lifelong achievement check. Free Poland. Another lifelong achievement was being done actually in the background. And just like her parents wanted their children to have education, she wanted it for her own kids. And during the war, somehow, Irene earned her Bachelor of Science in Physics from the Sorbonne. How do you these do that? People, these people have a to-do list and they just check it off. I know. And then she started working on her own doctorate, studying polonium's alpha rays. <laughs> It's like, so imagine all these bombs and this war and doing all this stuff with the Red Cross and going to class to get your degree in physics. <sighs> they make the rest of us look really lazy. <laughs> I made a grilled cheese sandwich before. Did you? That's I my made... achievement. That's my to-do list. <laughs> Good for you. I might do laundry later. <laughs> That's about my level of achievement for the day. I'm recording a podcast. You see, it just keeps snowballing. Maybe I am really accomplished after all. Yeah, you are. You have to do your list at the end of the day. I love that that you do that. I have done that for years. Explain it. The short version is why feel bad and put pressure on yourself at the beginning with stuff you know you're not going to get to. So just at the end of the day, write down all the stuff that you already did and then check it all off and then throw the list away. The end. (laughs) Feels good. Something to look forward to. Realizing what you've done. Yeah, because at the end of the day, we do we forget a lot of stuff that we've done. We just think about the stuff we have left to do. There will always be stuff left to do. There's Mm -hmm. no point dwelling on it. Just focus on the stuff you've already done. And speaking of accomplishments, Irene, in addition to earning her degree, she was actually awarded a military medal for her service during the war from France. And Marie, what did she get, Beckett? Bubkiss. Oh my gosh, that's the same word I wrote down. Bubkiss. Really? Are yes. you kidding? No, I'm not kidding. It's a great word. I didn't write it down. I just said it out loud. That's hilarious. Yeah. Mind meld. Yeah, she really got nothing. But you know what? She never really cared for the 
awards people gave her. If you recall, long ago she got the Davy Medal from England and gave it to Irene to play with. So, and she wanted her Nobel Prize medals melted down. She didn't care. No. What she did care about was that Radium Institute. So every morning she'd go. It's open for business, you know. Yeah. So she'd go to the institute. She'd walk in the door, and everyone's lurking around, super casual, waiting for her. And she would be besieged by students in the entryway. These kind of interruptions, she absolutely did not mind. These are students, and they wanted to show her stuff. A little show and tell. Oh, look, Madam Curie, what I did. Um, can you look at this paragraph and see if you see anything wrong with my math? Can you help? I'm having trouble understanding this. She sat on the stairs because there's nowhere else to sit and fielded these questions from the crowd and then after a while everyone would drift off and she could get back to work and i i think that is so adorable and touching that she goes in knowing every day she's going to be sitting on that stairs for 45 minutes yeah the main part of her job that she hated was fundraising i mean fundraising sucked the glory did not translate into gold, which sounds very familiar to me. <laughs> she was constantly having to wheedle and contrive and work on schemes, which she considered a waste of time. Like, why can I not just do the work? Ah, it's always that way, though. Seriously, the thing that gets you into the business is the thing, once it's successful, that you yourself don't get to do anymore, it seems like. Yeah. Another thing that Marie really didn't like was press. And who could blame her <laughs> after all that hoopla? <laughs> no. Um, so she even had little cards printed, little square cards that said, you know, because you need them every day. Madam Curie regrets she will not have time and will have to decline your offer of an interview. They're printed. <laughs> they're ready to go. That's right. But one American journalist got in somehow. Her name was Missy Maloney. First of all, she's a friend of a friend. That always helps. Secondly... She was a self-made woman. In her life, I mean, I, I actually wrote out a whole page. I could have gone longer. We could probably, but we won't, do a mini cast on her life. She was Kentucky-born. She was privately tutored for her education. She had a promising career cut short as a pianist because of a horseback riding accident. I mean, that tells you the level uh, in society that her family was. At 15, she wrote for the Washington Post. At 16, she helped cover the Republican National Convention. At 18, she became a reporter for the Denver Post in Washington and was the first woman to get a seat on the Senate press gallery. I mean, this she's a big deal. And she's been trying to get a meeting with Marie Curie for a very long time because she's extremely impressed by her. But it was her little note that touched Marie's heart. And here's a little excerpt from it. She wrote, My doctor father always used to say that it's quite impossible to exaggerate the littleness of human creatures. But for 20 years, you have been great in my eyes, madam. And I want to see you, only for a few minutes. Missy's first impression was, quote, I saw a pale, timid little woman in a black cotton dress with the saddest face I have ever looked upon. Her well-formed hands were roughed. I noticed a characteristic nervous little habit of rubbing the tips of her fingers over the pad of her thumb. I later learned that radium had made them numb. Her kind, patient, beautiful face had the detached expression of a scholar. I think in those sentences, we get such a beautiful vision of what Marie Curie was like in person. So it was that the women got to talking. And it came out in conversation that of the 140 or so grams of radium in existence in the world, 
Missy Maloney's own country, that would be America, had 50 of them. And she was literally shocked when Marie told her that France only had one. Total one. And that if she could have anything in the world, she would ask for one more gram of radium. The one they had was the product of years of work. And there's just no time to make another one. And there's too expensive to buy it. Is that just ironic? And I do think Missy Maloney went in as a fan, like a... I'm so excited to meet my idol. I think she went in there, like, to get stuff for her magazine, you know? Yeah. Like any press person would, but she came out of there kind of fired up with a goal, like, by hook or by crook. She is going to raise money for another gram of radium for this woman, and it's over a million bucks in today's money. Mm-hmm. She's going to get it from the women of America, and and you can sort of see that Marie didn't believe that it would ever happen because she said, well, if the women of America want to buy me a gram of radium, I'll be happy to come over and get it. That's right. She would not be happy. So she pretty much assumed they, it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. So the, the irony, of course, is that she hates the press and she hates asking for money. And that's the two, two things that are going to save her at this point in her life. Well, and Marie did not know the kind of PR powerhouse she was dealing with. Missy came back and she mobilized the troops, not literal troops, rich <laughs> powerful politicians' wives down to Girl Scout troops yeah. to contribute to the Marie Curie Radium Fund. You know, women were empowered in America this time because we'd just gotten the vote, you know? So, like, yes, look what a woman can do. Now, that's what Missy was presenting, this woman who did it without the, you know, without the legal voice. They needed this kind of role model in their lives, these American women did, and they were donating. I mean, she... They were donating one or five dollar donations. That's it. That's all they had to do to be part of this big movement. Now, I'm sorry to say there's a little false advertising. There's a little spin. Let's call it spin. It was kind of implied that radium could cure cancer. And that's why they needed it. And that was really that part of the research was really in its infancy, radioactive treatments for cancer. But in fact, Missy's first big PR push was literally entitled that millions shall not die and it warned that well madame curie's getting older and soon the world's gonna lose the secret of curing cancer forever i mean (laughs) nothing like lighting a fire i guess (laughs) and marie was always clear this was just research radium to which missy would just say details my dear details they don't it's too hard to explain we need to boil it down to just a few words cure cancer (laughs) So soon, very soon, really, the American women had the money. So come on over. Oh, crap. That's right. I got to go over there now. Oh, no. So Marie and her daughters headed to America on the Olympic. Can I just point out that this is finally an Eve sighting? I mean, poor Eve has been in the background. You know, Irene has worked with her through the war. And Irene has been off getting raised by other people. You know, but finally she gets to go on a trip with her mom and Irene and she got her mom to buy a new dress. She got her to buy a new dress, but it was kind of a plain dress. And uh, so Irene and Marie Curie had like, you know, ugly, squashy hats and clunky shoes. And then here's Eve. So attractive, Mm -hmm. by the way. They called her the girl with the radium eyes. She has such a funny relationship with Eve. There's whole conversations they used to have. Because, you know, she understood Irene. Mm -hmm. 
And they, they had a good working scientific relationship, and she was so intrigued by Eve, who was musical and fashionable and extroverted, which is completely incomprehensible to Marie Curie. <laughs> kind of, um, you know, medium attracted to it, just like kind of examining her like a specimen. I'm not sure you should put those stilts on your feet, Eve. <laughs> that lipstick, I I don't know about that color. And it's okay to have a dip in the front of the dress. That's pretty standard. But all the way in the back? I don't know. I think you're going to catch cold. What if a man dances with you and puts his hand on your back? It was all... She was just... <laughs> just but that was after she was worried that Eve didn't have any gifts, you know, early in life. Because Eve was not drawn to science and math like Irene and Marie were. And she it was kind of like, remember Hella? <laughs> Uh, Marie's sister, who was never talked about because she came in second. Eve, I think she had the same worries for Eve until Eve was discovered to be musically gifted. And then I guess she could relax and concentrate on the fact that her dress was dipping in the back. (laughs) And I actually think there's a strong correlation between music and math. My parents are symphony musicians, and I think they back me up. I think science backs you up. So here's the thing. On this trip, sometimes... The daughters would have to stand in for Marie Curie. They they really loaded her up with activities. It was grueling. Lectures at colleges, late night dinners, honorary degrees, factory tours, Niagara Falls, the Grand Canyon. And I thought, now what? Because those two things are not next to each other mm-hmm. in this country. And that's exactly what I'm saying. Everyone wanted to see her all over the dang country. Incidentally, we had German exchange students for seven years when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And the two things that the German students always wanted to see were the Statue of Liberty and the Grand Canyon. And it was very difficult to explain to them that either of those things was really far away. You know, Missy had planned a whole West Coast tour, too, and they didn't get to that because Marie just couldn't take it. She was just getting too tired. You know, Irene was stepping in for her. Uh, Eve was doing speaking for her to people, you know, just being the social member of the team. It was a lot. Uh, yeah, Marie was obviously ill. I mean, noticeably ill. There were lots of comments on how exhausted she looked. And she was suffering from cataracts mm-hmm. uh, at this point. And everyone commented on how frail she appeared. She's only 54. 54 is hale and hearty, go out and play tennis these days. But I think the constant exposure to that radium, I mean, you used to carry it around in your pocket. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, four years of unshielded full-strength x-rays where you're wearing an apron. Yeah. yeah. And she's also standing next to Eve, who's only 16. And, you know, <laughs> so by contrast, she's looking, you know, a lot older. I just think that all that exposure was adding up to some serious damage. Like this, oh. the, it was all kind of snowballing and kind of hitting her all at once. But eventually, at the end of this exhausting tour, President Harding presented her with her gram of radium that is to say a stunt gram of radium (laughs) because the real one was in the bank because it's a million dollars worth of tiny thing and we're not going to walk around with it and marie was so so very grateful um she left with not only that gram of radium but a lot of extra money oh and a lot of great work from male and female scientists began or happened within those institutes walls i'm telling you that gift really paid off in research. They didn't waste it and just put it in a closet. She didn't like and hardly ever really liked. You know, she did her bid for that Academy of Sciences thing, but most associations she just said I don't have time for. But she did join one, the International Committee on Intellectual Cooperation, which among other things ensured funding for science 
from, say, poor scientists who couldn't afford a lab because she had been there and was kind of always there on the edge of being like that. International cooperation and sharing of research while giving full credit to people. All kinds of things like that. Basically a global think tank and standards. When the Polish Institute was open, she went back to America a second time and did the whole circus again for another gram. Not like a trained monkey, but as a... I mean, she really, she's like, I've got this down now. I know how this is going to go. I'm ready. I'm going to do this right. And she did do it right. She got to Chicago during this trip. And I don't know if you know this, but there are more Polish speakers, or at least were at the time, in Chicago, Illinois, than there were in Warsaw. Yeah. And when Marie pulls up in Chicago, it is like firestorm of adoration. You can't even imagine. She was able to help celebrate the 50th anniversary of the light bulb with Henry Ford and President Hoover, among other people, in Michigan. And finally, when she was handed the check a few days later, the stock market crashed. So good thing she got that check in her hand because bad things happened right after she did. And then she's able to travel back to an independent Poland and give her first scientific speech in her native tongue. Remember, she could never speak in Polish as a child because it was punishable. And to her great joy, no way. Her old headmistress from elementary school was in the audience, the one that used to call on her during the Russian inspections. (laughs) It was just like she'd come full, Full full circle. It was great. Irene became the heiress apparent of the laboratory. That's natural enough. She and her fellow scientist husband actually won the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1935. Marie Curie did not live to see the actual award, but she did witness the thing they won for, which was artificial radioactivity. She was so proud. And, you know, that's five Nobel Prizes in the family. (laughs) She said at that moment she felt intense joy when she saw her daughter's accomplishment in the field that she and her husband had pioneered. Marie was really going downhill really very fast. And by now, everyone knew that radioactivity was dangerous. Um, Now, a lot of scientists were working in lead-lined rooms, or at least stored things in lead-lined boxes, and used long tongs, at least, or protective clothing that had lead aprons in it. And, you know, factory workers were a little more shielded. They had their blood monitored daily. So those precautions are in place, but Marie kept in the old way. She just picked things up with her bare hands. And there I saw a picture of uh, Irene actually using a, like, a little straw-like thing. There's a technical word for it. I forget. Pipette. Thank you. In sucking up radioactive material into this, like, with her mouth. So that's what they're doing. You know what? That is like the moms of today who grew up in the 70s and insist that their children wear helmets, bicycling, (laughs) but they get on their own bike with just a ponytail on their head. I mean, okay, Marie had kept a vial of radium on her bedside table as a nightlight. So probably at this point, long tongs are going to be too little too late. So just pick it up with your hand. There was a big scandal in 1925, speaking of safety it's called the radium girls scandal and it was a radioactive paint painted on watch hands so they glow in the dark super cool and in order to keep the brushes very pointed so they could paint with great precision the ladies were instructed to put the brushes in their mouths and twirl them to make a sharp point before they dipped their brush back in the radium paint Mm -hmm. and i don't want to be too graphic 
you can certainly follow the link if you wish to, but let's just say they fell apart grievously. Mm-hmm. Grievously. Quickly, too. Yes, very quickly. There's another story of a man named Eben Byers who drank radium water three times a day for a couple years and his jaw fell off. Engineers and doctors and nurses from those early days were going down like nine pins all over the world. Okay, here's the good news, though. Cancer research involving radioactivity was just now becoming effective. This is the 1930s. So for 20 or so years, radium was the go-to. It's since been replaced by cobalt and other things, but there's both sides of the radium coin. It can cause great harm, great harm, and it could also cause great joy. While on vacation with her daughter Eve, Marie Curie died on July 4th, 1934 of aplastic anemia, which basically means her bone marrow had lost its ability to function at all. Um, She was only 67. Per her wishes, she was buried actually on top of Pierre's casket. (laughs) And so the grave actually had um, Grandpa on the bottom and then Pierre um, in the middle and then Marie on the top, her ashes. It seems kind of fitting. Was it Pierre, Grandpa, and then him? She moved him around, I think, even oh. because she wanted Grandpa on the bottom and then Pierre. So when Grandpa died, yeah. She had two handfuls of Polish earth placed in the grave before the French dirt came in. She remained there until 1995 when the French government exhumed both of them. I don't think Grandpa made it. No, he's still he, there. He's still there. He's all alone now. But um, the government moved both Curies to the Pantheon in Paris, and there is a monument to them. And that is the end of the story of Marie Curie's life. And it should be noted that um, there is actually another element named in her honor, Curium, which could be after both she and Pierre. Again, Curium, which is number 96, which happened um, near the end of World War II, so 1944. There is also an Einsteinium, by the way. It's number 99. And I didn't know that there was a real Krypton. I didn't know. Oh. Uh, Pre-Superman, 1898. So the Superman guys were science nerds, I guess. And Krypton sounds super cool. And they used the name. I don't know if it's green. I guess I didn't look that up. Oh. But there is a real element named Krypton. Huh. Interesting. Can you verify or not? I saw in two different sources that tests were done on her ashes that revealed lower levels of radiation than were expected, and they were concluded that her death was not as a result to the radium that she handled in her lifetime, but rather to the exposures of the x-rays during the war. Yeah, that's what, um, yeah, I think that's what I saw too. That's like a tragic end, you know? You think, oh, the radium killed him. No, the good things she did during the war is what killed her. Ugh. Still, though, her papers, even now, are too radioactive to really handle without being shielded. Even now. Even now. That is amazing. After she died, Irene and her husband did accept their Nobel Prize. And Eve, Eve, little left behind Eve, uh, she became a writer. She wrote a biography of her mother that was published in 1937 and adapted into a movie in 1943. She was an accomplished pianist. She worked for UNICEF alongside her husband, who was the director, and later earned his own Nobel Prize for Peace. It's like the family collects Nobel Prizes. (laughs) 
She never had any children and lived her final years in New York City. She had been a U.S. citizen since 1958, and she died in 2007 at the age of 102. 102. That's That's astonishing to me. She's also the one that didn't go to the lab ever and the one that didn't do any x-raying during the war. Yeah. So maybe longevity reigned in the family, but you just couldn't tell. (laughs) So now it's time for us to close out the story of Marie Curie. And when we come back, we will give you many rabbit holes to fall down and uh, many things to explore on your own in our media segment. And we are back and we are going to start with books as usual, I do believe. Okay. So I have a book that, in appearance, and the illustrations, which are woodcut, look so much like the yellow editions of the Little House books. It's called The Radium Woman, A Life of Marie Curie by Eleanor Dorley. And um, the thing that I found very interesting about this is during the chapter where Langevin and Marie have their affair, this book is indignant about lies spread by jealous people. And it does not go into the reality of the situation at all. <laughs> Glossed right over it, just like Laura Ingalls Wilder did. Yeah, it's kind of funny because it's <laughs> it's told in a very indignant tone. They, they put unkind things in the newspapers about her and it made her feel sad. And I'm like, well, yes. I found that very touching that they were defending her in that way. Yeah, well, that's sweet. I have a YA book. It's called Obsessive Genius, The Inner World of Marie Curie by Barbara Goldsmith. So I did have that book, so I'm moving on to the next one, simply titled Curie by Sarah Dry, D-R-Y. And it's, it seems like a thin book, but it is packed, 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 packed with information. It's very well laid out. I would say it's a grown-up level book, but it is very easy to read. And then as a tangent, I have a book called Marie Curie and Her Daughters by Shelley Emling. And that's where I got most of the stuff about uh, <laughs> the wearing stilts and the lipstick. And It doesn't cover her whole life, but it starts um, later on and goes back and forth. So yeah, I like that one too. There is an epically illustrated National Book Award finalist illustrated book called Radioactive, Marie and Pierre Curie, A Tale of Love and Fallout by Lauren Redness. And it is so surreal. I can't describe it. The illustrations are so Salvador Dali, maybe, like, Mm -hmm. I don't even know. That's not the right. Anyway, all the type is interestingly placed and the illustrations are very... um, it evokes this, the feeling of what's happening in Marie Curie's life. It's a pretty big book, and there it's very thorough, but it is undescribable. I've got some pages for it on the Pinterest board mm-hmm. so that you can witness for yourself the indescribable notion of that art. We'll have the books in our show notes for everything. I kind of feel like the last one I have isn't as great as that one, but it's a good biography. It's called The Curies, a biography of the most controversial family in science by Dennis Bryan. Uh, Also very in-depth, but not nearly as dramatic as the one you just talked about. I thought it was very well written. And then I have, I don't, why did I write this? I don't know. I have a little list called Things Named After Marie Curie. (laughs) So I have Pierre and Marie Curie Metro Station in Paris up until 
the 90s. I think it was just the Pierre Curie metro station, actually. A Mars rover that never got to roll, uh, though I think it got near. It was the spare. I think it went to Mars, but I think it didn't get deployed. Bummer. Um, a rose, a bridge in Poland, many schools, including an elementary school in San Diego that one of our listeners went to, a middle school in New York City, a high school in Chicago, and many colleges, universities, and hospitals. As far as movies go, um, this there's the 1943 Greer Garson Walter Pigeon version, which was based on the book that Eve wrote. Uh, how, how much did you love it? Beckett. Okay, here's I, here's my five word review. Ready? Very stagey. Omg, blurg, arg. That's literally <laughs> what I wrote. I watched the trailer and the titles come across. The music's very dramatic, very Gone with the Windian to the point where I even looked up to see. Um, no, it's not the same guy, but it sure sounds like that. Do 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 do. It's like too dramatic for what's happening. The love story of the most exciting woman of her day. The truth about their journey into the unknown. You know, come on. But I don't want to give it up. I can't. I can't. Yeah, um, I didn't get through it, <laughs> which is actually good because you. It's really hard to find. It's not available on any of the streaming sites. It's not in, on YouTube where you can usually get movies. It, you, there's scenes of it, but not the whole thing. You could legitimately yeah. just watch the trailer and see how you feel. Because I don't think right. you're going to need to go down any further down that trip path. But fortunately for this world, there is a new one. Uh, it was done. I, I'm going to guess it's in Polish because it was a Polish director and Polish actresses. And it was filmed in Poland. It's called Maria Sklodowska Curie. It just premiered in August of 2016 at the Toronto International Film Festival. So a little modern interpretation of the story. I think I'd like to see that one, even if I had to read it. There is another movie that I am not going to actually recommend, but I have been forced to mention <laughs> due to the fact that it is one of my husband's favorite movies of all time. Incomprehensible to me. But if you like the likes of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, you might like Young Einstein. <laughs> yes, it is Yahoo Serious. He's Young Einstein, who is from Australia for no apparent reason and plays the violin. And his best friend slash love interest is Marie Curie, who in the movie has a French accent. I don't know. <laughs> so there it is. Things blow up. His hair sticks up in comic fashion. His pants are too short. That's all I really remember. But Chris Graham, our sometimes announcer, wanted to make sure that you guys checked that out. So, <laughs> okay. I can officially cross What that year off. was that? Oh my gosh, that was was that eighties or nineties? I want to say late late eighties, probably maybe early nineties. I don't know. Somewhere you know. Yeah. One that I could recommend is a, is a documentary by the BBC. It's called The Genius of Marie Curie, The Woman Who Lit Up the World, which you can watch online and we'll give a link to. Some of this stuff has to go back to the previous episode also, but um, there is a picture and an article about the x-ray of Mrs. Rontgen's hand, the first x-ray ever taken of a human being. I have a link to what is the deal with the partitioning of Poland, if you're interested about why Marie's childhood was so fraught with Russian oppression. There is an article about her radioactive papers and how 100 years later, no one can touch them. They Might Be Giants have a song called Meet the Elements. Yes. There is another song, adults only, just because of, I don't know, 
watch it for yourself. It's called Chemical Party, and and uh, it's basically like the elements are at a party and things that happen at the party. So, is that a YouTube? It's on YouTube. Yes, I've got a link here. Uh, okay. If you're not going to mention Doctor Who, I will. Uh, you can go ahead and do that because I honestly didn't write it down. So the eighth Doctor, she doesn't appear, at least not in the episode that I found, but he does mention that she's a good kisser. Um, Then also, the Curies appear as laser Godzilla zombies on The Simpsons in an episode that I will provide you a link to. Um, I have, see, look, honestly, I have so much weird stuff. I have the Lord's Prayer in Russian audio. Um, because she had to recite that for the Russian inspector. And more seriously, I have both the Marie Curie Cancer Hospital. That was a uh, cancer hospital that was started in the 20s with Marie Curie's approval that was staffed by only women that worked on radioactive cancer treatments. That hospital has become what is now an institution in Britain, or as Susan would say, Britain. <sighs> <laughs> Go ahead. Mock me. (laughs) No, I'm embracing. I'm highlighting. (laughs) Um, The Marie Curie Hospice. Every March, they have a a very large, very well-publicized fundraising drive where you can buy a pin, like a brooch, shaped like a daffodil, and it goes toward cancer research and their hospice outreach. Uh, there is, of course, a museum. It's the uh, Musée Curie in Paris. You can tour it online a little bit. But all I wrote down was it included her garden, replicating the garden that she had originally put at the Institute and including the pink Marie Curie rose that you talked about earlier. Except I went on to describe it because that's the kind of plant nerd I am. But it's a bush rose. It's light orange to pink blooms, and it prolifically blooms all summer long. I do want to give a couple nods to the young women who are looking to science in their future. One, there was, it's on YouTube, and I'm going to put it up for them. It's, it's homemade, but it's three high school girls' honors physics project, and they did an epic rap battle between Jane Goodall and Marie Curie. It was really cute. I mean, it's not slick production or anything, but I, it was really cute. I, I hope they got an A on that. And there is a program at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. It was a girls' math camp. And as part of their program this summer, they put together podcasts about female mathematicians. Now, Marie isn't on there, but I thought she tied in because she's math. And I just I just love this program for girls. It was for high-achieving girls in the area. It looked really fun, and I am not a math person. So we'll link you up to their uh, their podcast. One more for if it is a little bit higher production value. Um, there is a series on YouTube called Draw My Life. They have a YouTube channel, and they have a Marie Curie. They have dedicated to math and physics. And that's pretty much all I have. And that's all I have, too. So we will leave you with some words from Marie Curie herself. I am among those who think that science has great beauty. We should not allow it to be believed that all scientific progress can be reduced to mechanism. Neither do I believe that the spirit of adventure runs any risk of disappearing in our world. If I see anything vital around me, it's precisely that spirit of adventure which seems indestructible. Thanks for listening. Bye. 
If you learned something today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. New items are added daily on the Pinterest boards. Weirdly, I have recently found a whole lot of new art for the Red Riding Hood board. And the Marie Curie board is all brand new, of course. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The History Chicks. The closing song is Marie Curie by The Crypts. And there's a link in our show notes for you to buy it from the artists. The History Chicks is part of the Panoply Network, a division of Slate.com. Science and technology. Give them bad names, Marie.